I want to ask you a question. What is rich? What does that word mean? I mean, think about it. Think about the word rich. You know, are, are, are you rich? Am I rich? Are we rich? You know, they say that even the poorest person in the United States is richer than, than a great portion uh, of, of people in the world. So how do you know? How do you know if a person is rich? Or how do, how do you become rich? Do you, do you invest wisely? Do you uh, uh, invent some sort of a device for the, uh, an app for the iPhone and make a lot of money? Do you watch infomercials on, on how to get rich? Or do you make an infomercial and make a lot of money that way? John D. Rockefeller gave some advice for, being, for becoming wealthy. He said, come to work early, stay at work late, and find oil. And that's a way to become rich. Well, here's rich, at least in the eyes of the world. I did a little calculating via the Internet. If you take the top 10 greatest income earners, the people that made the most money in 2012, people like Warren Buffett and uh, uh, Bill Gates, people like that, they made on average around $10 billion in that year. That means if they worked every day, they would make around twenty, little over $27 million per day. And that if they worked, say, 10 hours a day, that means they would make $2.7 million an hour, which comes to $45,700 a minute, which comes to $761 per second. I'd be glad to work for half of that. What's the point? The point is this. They're making $761 a second. That means if they're at work and somehow they accidentally drop a $1,000 bill on the floor and they have to stop work for two seconds to pick it up, then they would be losing money. It'd be better to leave the $1,000 bill on the floor. That's a picture in the eyes of the world of what rich is. But our passage today in Revelation chapter 2, as we continue when I preach this series on the letters to the seven churches and we're on the second church, this letter to Smyrna proposes a completely different picture of what wealth is, of what riches are, and how to go about getting those. So let's look at the word of the, word of the Lord in Revelation chapter 2. We'll start reading in verse 8. Here's the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. But be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. That's the word of the Lord that lasts forever. 
Now, as we think about this package, passage, remember the background. We talked about, or if you know anything about Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 2, the picture that we have of Jesus here, of as he is now, is not exactly the picture that we had of Jesus a couple of weeks ago when he was in the manger. In fact, Revelation chapter 1 depicts him as dazzling in brilliance and complete in authority and light. And the first letter to, uh, 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 that, 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 that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John was about the church at Ephesus. And remember, they had a lot of wonderful, wonderful things going on in that church, but they had a problem, and they were in desperate need of returning to their first love. They seemed to have passed from one generation to another, and, and, and they had drifted into things like, like doctrine, and which is important, and, and, and apologetics, which is vital. But they needed a fresh love for people, and they needed a fresh love for Christ. So now we leave Ephesus, and we journey about 40 miles up to the town of Smyrna. And Smyrna didn't have that problem. They couldn't have that problem. They couldn't have afforded to lose their first love, because if they did, they wouldn't have made it. Back then, Smyrna was a town of Oh, around 100,000 people. It was a port city, just a little background about it. Uh, There's still a town there today. It's called Izmir, Izmir, Turkey. And back then, Smyrna was described as the pride of Asia. And we know that the church there was a good church. Because in these seven letters that Jesus addresses to the churches, only two of them did not, did not have a form of condemnation. And one of them was the church in Smyrna. It was a, this passage is a passage of encouragement and of compliments. And even in the midst of their material poverty, they were rich. And God was using things to make them rich. He was setting that environment. What were they? There's, there's three things in this passage that we know about that God was using to create the environment for these Christians in Smyrna, Smyrna to be rich in the eyes of the Lord. What was going on? Well, first there were, there were afflictions. There was a tribulation going on there. And here's, here's what it was about. Smyrna took great pride in being a city of Rome. They were considered loyal to Rome, and Rome appreciated them. They had a great relationship with the Roman government and the Roman authorities. Now remember, the Romans didn't care who you worshipped as long as you worshiped the emperor first. And since Smyrna was such a loyal city to Rome, there's a wonderful uh, uh, secular pagan temple there called De Roma, which, which, which means Rome God. And they deified Rome. And they deified the head of Rome, who was the emperor. And every year, everyone in Smyrna was required to worship in this temple. And when they went they would, to worship, they would receive a certificate of worship that was good for a year. Now, why is that a big deal? Because if you didn't have that certificate of worship, then you could be thrown into prison. Everyone had to bow before the bust of Caesar, and they had to sprinkle incense on the fire, and they had to exclaim, Caesar is Lord. So you see, these Christians in Smyrna were faced with a choice. To refuse to bow to Caesar would mean they were not able to receive that certificate, and worse, they would probably 
If their number was called, they would be imprisoned. They would await trial, and that trial would often lead to death. It's interesting that, that Paul, in his writing to his younger uh, compatriot, his, his, his uh, pastor Timothy, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So they had tribulation. They had to make a choice. Do they worship Caesar? Or do they not bow down to him and risk being put into prison? That was one of the things that was going on. Another was this. You can see it in the passage. There was slander. There was a large population of, of, of Jews there in Smyrna, and they had the ear of the Roman authorities. They were in business with them, and they were, they were prospering there, and they were um, um, uh, working with the Roman leadership. And what they were doing... They were conducting a smear campaign against the Christians, against the church there. That's why Jesus referred to them as the synagogue of Satan. You know, John 10.10 says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's exactly what this synagogue of Satan, what these Jews were doing, is they were trying to steal, kill, and destroy Christians living in Smyrna, and as a result, they were unknowingly a pawn of Satan. Well, how would they do that? Well, they'd let the Roman authorities know. They would say, hey, see that fellow over there? Why don't you see if he has a certificate? I don't know if he's been to worship in the past year. You know, why don't you see if he's got a certificate and then go over there? And if he didn't, then the guy would be, the, the, the Christian would be in trouble. In addition, they would, they would, they would spread lies. They would take something that the Christians were doing and they would twist it. They would say things like, you know, uh, if you go to one of their services, uh, they have communion and they talk about uh, uh, eating the body and drinking the blood. You know, I haven't ever been there, but I think these guys, these guys are, are cannibals. Yeah, these guys are cannibals. And that's not good for a Roman to be a, a, a cannibal. Or, or uh, uh, they would have these, uh, these feasts, these agape meals, these love feasts before their worship services. And these, these Jews would say, these love feasts, who knows what they're doing in there? There's got to be something going on that's, that's immoral. Or maybe someone would actually become a believer in the family. Let's say a wife would become a believer and that could create a great amount of friction in the family. And so these Jews would say, these Christians are, 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 are uh, marriage wreckers. They break up families. And they even went so far as to call them atheists. These people won't worship the emperor. These people are atheists. So they were slandering them. They were marginalizing them. And as a result, many, if not all, of the Christians in Smyrna lived in poverty because they were shunned by many people. So consequently, it was hard to get a job. Work was difficult. Worship was difficult. Life was difficult. Work was hard to come by. And those who were slaves were treated poorly. They didn't get anywhere near a fair shot economically. And as a result, their, their poverty was extreme. The, this word used for poverty means destitute. It means not knowing where their next meal would come from. But they were faithful. They were hanging, hanging in there. They were, they were suffering even to the point of death. And Jesus says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. One of the great paradoxes in the Christian life, 
you ever notice how different following Christ really is from, from, from the world that we live in? I know your poverty, but you are rich. Are we here in other ways? Uh, we surrender for victory. We give up in order to gain. We can be rich even in our poverty. Now there's one, uh, one other thing uh, it's good to point out. One of, the, one of the chief industries in the town of Smyrna was the production of a perfume called myrrh. It's in the name, Smyrna. They produced myrrh, and you might remember myrrh, one of the gifts of the Magi that they presented to the baby Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh was a perfume. And over time, it became a perfume that was associated with death because they used it sort of to preserve dead bodies. Now, in order to harvest myrrh, you would go to a, a, a certain type of bush or a tree and the harvester would jab the limb of the tree over and over again until the sweet-smelling myrrh, like a rosin, this fragrant aroma, would bleed out of the wounded tree. See the picture? These, these folks in this little church in the town of Smyrna were being wounded, but they were fleeing to Christ, and they were a fragrant aroma for the Lord, produced by what was bleeding from their wounds. And that is rich. And that's a, a picture of the faithful little church in Smyrna, and it's a picture of all believers who are hanging in there in the midst of suffering. And so this passage is not only about being rich, but it's about how do we handle suffering. You know, Jesus says to the church, I know you're suffering. Now, be faithful. Here's a question that we've asked. In Revelation chapter 1, we know that Jesus is presented as being the one who he is in authority and in power. He is brilliant. He is supreme. He could have put an end to their suffering and really our suffering and all suffering with just a word. But he didn't. And he doesn't. Why? Which brings us to the question... Why does God allow suffering? I'm not an authority. I can't uh, answer every reason except to say that one of the reasons that's mentioned here that I think is true throughout Scripture, and you can, you can count on the Word of God, it's that somehow in God's fatherly plan for His children, suffering provides an environment that can make us rich according to him. I'm not sure that why does God allow suffering is the real question. Because it seems to me that suffering, that hard things, that very hard things are part of life. That no life is free from pain. It's universal. You know, it rains on the just and the unjust. And a lot of times the things that we have to go through aren't fair. There's natural disasters that we see on the news. There's circumstances of all kinds. There's just plain bad luck. There's poor choices that we make. 
There's governments that are fighting each other for power and control, and there's millions of innocent people, people who are starving and suffering as a result of it. You know, it's everywhere. And it affects us as well. So our passage today lends itself to thinking about suffering, but maybe a better question is not why, but how do we as believers handle it? How do we become rich through suffering? You know, it seems to me that perhaps no culture other than ours has had such a uh, difficult time explaining and dealing with suffering as ours had. I mean, many cultures, most cultures, understand it a little better. They embrace suffering as part of life. But we live in a world, we live in a society that's geared towards uh, our right to personal peace and our right to affluence, and, and suffering just doesn't have a place in that. It's like some, some rude interruption on our rightful plan for happiness. And even many Christians are swayed by the idea of a Jesus who is a giver of good things. And suffering can't be a good thing because suffering hurts. But then when you look at the Word of God, James 1 says, Count it all joy, not if, but when you encounter various trials. 1 Peter chapter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal Uh, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In fact, if you take a look at the the heroes in the Bible, I would say that, that the vast majority, I mean, the vast majority endured some form of suffering. Abraham with Isaac. Joseph was thrown into the well merely because his brothers were were jealous. And then he did the right thing with Potiphar's wife who was trying to seduce him and he took off. And he was thrown into prison. Unjust. Moses chose to suffer the ill treatment of his people rather than live in the palace of the Pharaoh. And he wandered in the desert for 40 years. And David suffered. David suffered because of his adultery, and he also suffered because the king was out to get him, and he had to run from King Saul. And that's not to mention the prophets and the apostles, most of whom died a martyr's death. And then the most unjust suffering of all, Jesus Christ on the cross, who says in this passage that he died and came to life again. Almost every hero in the Bible was shaped by their suffering and by their hardship. Hebrews 5 tells us that even Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. We suffer for many reasons. We suffer because, for one, we're just part of a fallen creation. Romans chapter 8 talks about that. It rains on the just and unjust. Our bodies get old. Our bodies tend to decay. The the pain that we feel in the morning sometimes just gets worse. Our disease can stricken us, and we, we go to that waiting room, and we hope and pray for good news, not knowing what's in store. We are just part and suffer the consequences of being a fallen creation. Decisions are made not in the best interest of everybody that affect people. Decisions made in government or in, in a, a business or even in family life. All because we're part of a fallen creation and it has an impact. And we suffer also just because of the consequences of our, of our selfishness. Or we suffer because of others' selfishness, relationship problems. 
Maybe a spouse walks out. And we suffer because we're called to forgive. And to be honest, I don't want to forgive. And I don't even have a clue about how to go about doing that. Or maybe we worship money and we get overextended. Whatever the case might be. But in our case today, these Christians in Smyrna were suffering because they wouldn't back down. Because they couldn't back down. See, they were identified with Jesus Christ, and they were devoted followers of him. And this is suffering that one knowingly brings about because he has no other choice. He's going to do what is right. He is going to follow Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, it is still very hard. No matter what the reason for, for our suffers, and no matter what the reason for the struggles, whether we're at fault or whether it's simply because of the trials of life, or maybe it's because we're taking a stand for Christ, whatever the reason is, the outcome is the same, and the response is also the same in our suffering. Jesus says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He says, hang in there. He says, hold on to me. Hold on to my promises. Wants us to ask, Lord, show me the love and the grace of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of the very things that I'm going through, no matter how awful and how painful and how I lack in the understanding of it. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. So how do we do that? How do we handle suffering and trials and stuff like that? Well, I think there's two ways. One of the ways is that the trials of our lives can shrink our faith. And they can lead us to become uh, disillusioned or despondent. They can lead us to to doubt. We can be filled with doubt. And if you're like me, I've, I've experienced every one of those, and my life has been pretty simple. When we suffer through trials, it is painful, and it hurts. There's shock. There's anger. Maybe we're angry at God. There's, there's fear. It makes us recoil. It makes us shrink back. We can lose our perspective. Our lives can be disrupted. It can manage our lives. And it can make us feel lost because of the pain that's often accompanied with it. You know something else? We kind of live in a world that emphasizes a Christ that gives us joy and that gives us happiness along with the the idea with it too that if if I'm frustrated or if I'm mad or if I doubt or if I grieve, then there must be something wrong with me because I'm not being a perfect Christian. A Christian should be happy. And that's a myth sometimes. But somehow behind all of this for a believer, and and, and this passage uses the word overcomer for believer, is that this idea of suffering drives us to a greater dependency on our Heavenly Father. And therein lies the riches. 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 and 7, just listen to this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept or guaranteed in heaven for you who by God's power, that's us, are being guarded through faith for our salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So then it says this. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And get this. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you only remember two words. Remember the two words, so that... So that, so that every trial, every circumstance, every bit of suffering, no matter how surreal it seems, whatever you want to call it, has a so that. And the so that, so that says all things work together for good to those who love him or are called according to his purpose. This so that says be faithful so that I will give you the crown of life. You get bad news from the doctor. You, you, you go through a messy breakup. Your portfolio is cut in half. Maybe there's a situation where, honestly, there's no good end in sight, this side of heaven. Whatever it is, there's no suffering that occurs for a Christian. Even that which is wrought by Satan himself, just think of the cross, that happens without a so that. We may not always know the why. It may not make sense to us. It may seem that God could have done it another way, but somehow God has designed all suffering for his children to make us rich. You know, when I've talked to people who are going through a, a difficult time and they're struggling, but they're hanging in there, they always find that God becomes more real The important things in life become more important. God becomes less abstract. He becomes more personal. He is there. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, and shouts in our pain. Think of this passage. What Jesus is doing is he's comforting and he's encouraging this persecuted church, and in the same way he's encouraging us by saying, I am the first and the last who died and came to life again. And twice he says, I know you. I know your pain. I know your suffering. I know your tribulation. And that's a powerful statement. For him to say, I am the first and the last, that he is the alpha and the omega, that he is the one who has comprehensive control over history, comprehensive control over our history, because every event, every circumstance that falls between the first and the last, I know, because I hold it and I hold you in the palm of my hand. And what is more, Part of that comprehensive control is this. I died, I came to life, I did it for my people, I did it for my church, and this unfair stuff, these difficulties, these trials, 
This suffering that you wish you would go away? He's telling this church in Smyrna, and he's telling us to hang in there. He says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who turned the light on, and I'm going to be the one that turns the light off because I'm going to be the last one to leave. I'm with you always, he says in John 10, and no one will be able to snatch you from my hand. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then finally, he offers this this encouragement. He says, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Hang in there. You know what he says? He says, hang in there. It actually might get worse, but remain faithful. Because you will win in the end. You know why? Because I win in the end. Well, history tells us that this church continued to suffer. Around 155 AD, which is about 60 years after this letter was written, uh, there was a man who was a bishop, and he was older now, he was young back then, but now he is in his mid-80s, and it is said that this man was perhaps discipled by the Apostle John himself as a young man, and that John appointed this man as the bishop of Smyrna. That means he could have actually been there when this letter that was received from Jesus by John was read to the church in Smyrna. In Erdman's Christian Handbook, uh, Handbook of Christianity tells the story of Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, and perhaps you've heard of it. He stepped forward and was asked by the proconsul if he was really Polycarp. And when he said yes, the proconsul urged him to deny the charge. Respect your years, he exclaimed, adding similar appeals regularly made on such occasions. Swear by Caesar's fortune and change your attitude. The governor pressed him further. Swear and I will set you free. Curse, denounce Christ. For 86 years, replied Polycarp, I've been a servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? I have wild beasts. I shall throw you to them if you don't change your attitude. Call them, replied the old man. If you make light of the beasts, retorted the governor, I'll have you destroyed by fire unless you change your attitude. Polycarp answered, the fire you threaten burns for a time and is soon extinguished, but there is a fire you know nothing about reserved for judgment. But why do you hesitate? Do what you want. The proconsul was amazed and sent the crier to stand in the middle of the arena and announce three times, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. Then a shout went up from every throat that Polycarp must be burned alive And the rest followed in less time than it takes to describe. The crowd rushed to collect logs and branches. When the pyre was ready, Polycarp prayed. And when he had offered up the amen and completed his prayer, the men in charge lit the fire and and a great flame shot up around the saint, burning Polycarp to ashes. You know, a friend of mine who works for a missions organization recently told me that every 11 minutes, 
Somewhere in the world, a believer dies for his faith. That's the same faith that we profess. I have a worn Bible somewhere, and it was the Bible that I received in my sixth grade confirmation class, and it was the first Bible that I used when I became a Christian in college, and I would, I would take that Bible, and I would study it, and I would underline verses, and I would write references in the margin, and I would draw arrows and mark page numbers to connect these different ideas and these thoughts to each other. And one of the first verses that I ever underlined was found in Romans chapter 5. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And we hear that story about Polycarp, and we might think that his faith and his courage are, are exceptional, but really, Poly, what he had was no different from what all believers have. But imagine this little church in Smyrna and the believers there. How their life was lived, knowing that if necessary, they would die for Jesus Christ. And that seemed foreign to us. Romans 8 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And I'm not an expert on suffering. and I'm definitely not an expert on persecution. But I know people who are and people who do suffer and have suffered. And I find that those who are faithful, those who in spite of or those who despite all, continue to go to Jesus, I find that those people have an amazing walk with Jesus Christ. And someone said it this way. You realize that when Jesus is all you have, Jesus is all you need. And I think what happens is that pain and suffering, things that are mentioned in this passage, however that looks, persecution, sickness, trials, it strips us of the, the dross that mars the shine. And reminded that our hope, you know, it doesn't reside in ourselves and it doesn't reside in our circumstances. It resides in a person. And when Jesus says, I am the first and the last, and when he says, I know, I know, I know, Jesus is not a, a construct or an abstract idea or, or even an example. He is a person who is first and foremost our Savior. Someone gave me this quote by Charles Spurgeon. They who navigate little streams and shallow creeks know but little of the God of tempests. But they who do business in great waters, these see his wonders in the deep. Be faithful and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you that you desire to make us rich. And it's tough. Yet, Lord, we thank you that you were with us, that you remain with us. 
Give us the strength and give us the power in order to endure the trials that come our way through life so that we might be able to not only honor you and glorify you, but we might be able to know you better. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.